Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to uh, turn in them to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. We'll be looking this evening at Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. What I'd like to do, though, is begin our reading this evening in verse 6 for a little bit of context. If you would give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient and authoritative word. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would use Your word to impress upon us what we are to believe, what we are to do, And what hope we have in you, O Lord. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The text we're going to look at briefly this evening is Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12. And it is a classic text that speaks of the connection between circumcision and baptism. It is a text that is much debated, for this is an issue of much controversy in the church. It is an issue of much controversy even in the broader Reformed church, those who are Reformed paedo-baptists, that is, who baptize infants as well as adults, and those who are Reformed credo-baptists, that is, who only baptize those upon a profession of faith. And so much of the scripture that looks in a narrative at this issue is is hard to give us assistance. It's difficult to discern exactly what is going on. There is just not enough detail, for example, in the story of the Philippian jailer to know exactly what is going on. Men have argued for centuries about the prepositions and the language in Jesus being baptized or in the apostles conducting baptisms in the early chapters of Acts. But it seems to me that if we are to think about the sign of the covenant and what baptism means, this passage is a key passage for us because it connects for us not just the words, not just the ideas, but the the context of circumcision and baptism and what their purpose is in God's plan. So what I would like to do this evening is to ask and try and answer three questions, two by way of background and then one by application in the text itself. First, I'd like to ask the question, what was circumcision? For, of course, 
Paul brings that up here. What was circumcision? The second question that we ask ourselves is, how does it relate to baptism? Because after all, Paul does that. He connects baptism with circumcision. What is the relationship between this thing, circumcision, and baptism? And then the last question we would ask ourselves is, what does this mean? Why is Paul going through the effort here to make this connection for us in the New Testament era? So what was circumcision? How does it relate to baptism? And what does this mean? Well, let's begin then by looking at circumcision. It is where Paul begins. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, we need to remember the context in which Paul is speaking. He is speaking in a context of false teachers trying to convince the Colossian church to do things that they have commanded. They are trying to add elements to the gospel. They are trying to add adherence to their own personal cadre. They are trying to add to their party. And so, at this point in time, they were teaching in a takeoff of the Old Testament ritual of circumcision that there, there was a second entrance into the covenant that was needed. Baptism was good and well, but there also needed to be done a circumcision because this was a way in which you really made sure you were a part of the people of God. You became sold out for God by being circumcised. You see, we think about that phrase as something that is very positive, as some sort of secondary work that we do. But you see, the Bible doesn't know of this. You are either a believer and a follower of Christ, or you are not. There are not rankings of believers. But you see, the false teachers here had taught that by putting off the flesh in a very physical way, it was a way that you could think about stripping off the flesh. And this was following in the footsteps of what God had ordained in His purpose. You see, circumcision as a marker of belonging to the covenant community. You recall we looked at this several weeks ago in Genesis chapter 17. In verse 9, God says to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. And then he says, this is my covenant, which you shall keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. There is covenantal language that God uses here. He uses the sign of the covenant as shorthand for the covenant. He encompasses all that is involved with his relationship with Abraham by saying, you must keep it by being circumcised. Now, there is obviously more to covenant with God than simply the act of circumcision. But God here is making it of such importance as a sign of his relationship with Abraham that he actually calls it his covenant. He does this again in the book of Exodus. You may recall before Moses led the Israelites out of the promised land at the end of, of chapter 4, Beginning at verse 24, Moses was at a lodging place along the way and the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And we wonder, why would God seek to put Moses to death? He had raised him up to be a redeemer for God's people. And he sought to put him to death because 
Moses had not circumcised his son. He had broken the language of Genesis 17. God had told Abraham that anyone who was not circumcised would be cut off. That's how important this sign of the covenant was. And so God meets Moses to remind him of his obligations under the covenant. But we also need to remember that circumcision is not what makes one a part of the covenant. It is a sign that is applied when membership is assumed by birth. When Esther was baptized this morning, that did not make her a part of covenant with God, in covenant with God. She was entitled to baptism in the sign of the covenant because she was in covenant with God. This is a formal recognition of the covenant community. But God works in families. And this formal recognition is done to point to the promises of God and to impress them upon the recipient. That's why God gives Abraham the promise first and circumcision next. The sign of the covenant is there to bolster faith in God's word. Even a giant of the faith like Abraham needed to be assured of the truth of God's word, the truth of God's promises. And that's what circumcision did for Abraham and all of his household. As Abraham went, everywhere he went, he would know that he was in covenant with God. It was literally cut into his body. And he could remind his servants and his children that they had responsibilities under the covenant because they had the covenant sign put upon them. This covenant sign is not something that reduces our responsibility in the covenant. It actually leads to yet more personal responsibility because we become aware that we are in relationship with God, that we owe Him a duty as our Creator and our Redeemer. This is what circumcision was for in the Old Testament. Now, what it did not mean, it did not mean that there was somehow some physical descent that made children of God. We know this because Ishmael received the sign of the covenant. Esau received the sign of the covenant, and yet they were not children of God. They rejected the covenant. They were covenant breakers. And you see, the covenant sign is not some form of magic wand that we wave to make Christians. Our Lord Jesus Christ impressed this point upon the Jews of His day. You see, when He spoke to them in John chapter 8, they were convinced that they were in right standing with God because they said in John 8, 39, Abraham is our father. And it's very interesting that as Jesus Christ is preaching to them that the truth of God's Word will set them free, they simply cross their arms and say, we're descended from Abraham. We're fine. And Jesus says to them that if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. That is, you would be trusting by faith in the Lord and the one that he sent. And so we see here that the sign of the covenant does not ensure that physical descent makes children of God. But we must also remember that God does deal in families. The church is made up of families and the covenant sign is there to remind us that we have familial responsibility. 
Now, this is difficult in our day and age because we have lost a real sense of extended family, haven't we? We've even lost the sense of the nuclear family with a mother and a father and children. And because of this and because of the great difficulties of evangelism, we have actually gone about evangelism backwards from the way that God thinks about it. Now, it's, it's understandable why, but if you think about it, how do we often seek to get into faith? We have vacation Bible school, don't we? We have backyard Bible clubs. We have a wanna. We seek to reach the children to bring in the parents. And by God's grace, that is an avenue for evangelism, but we must be thinking of reaching parents, of especially reaching heads of households. You see, Satan wants us to give up on fathers, to leave households alone, to not let them identify with Christ, to not have His Word in their midst, to not have prayer be a part of their life, their table, and their sleep. But you see, the sign of the covenant shows that God works in families and that we are to see His church expand in that fashion. Now, how does this all relate to baptism? Well, we see that here in in Paul's text. If we take out the subordinate clauses, if we take out the prepositional phrases, the text reads something like this. In him also you were circumcised, having been buried with him in baptism. See, Paul makes almost a one-to-one correlation here between circumcision and all that we think about that and baptism. So as we start to think about baptism here, don't forget or put somewhere in another compartment of your mind everything we just spoke about, that The sign of the covenant is for families. It is to impress the promise upon us. It is to show that the Lord is strengthening our faith in His Word. It is language of the covenant. And so too is baptism. We see that in Acts chapter 2. When Peter preaches a sermon and then he says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, he says, Repent and be baptized every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise. That's Genesis 17 language. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And so this is the same kind of language that we see in Genesis 17 and verse 10. It is language of covenantal family inclusion that yet still impresses upon us the requirement of faith in Jesus Christ. Circumcision was not enough in the Old Testament. Baptism is not enough in the New. But there is a connection here. You and your children are the ones who are the recipients of the promise. And it is interesting here to me that as we look at this and think about baptism, that verse 40 does not say, And Josiah and Zedekiah and Zebedee raised their hands and said, What about the kids, Peter? 
We've been circumcising them for thousands of years. What do we do now? You see, the silence here is deafening. Peter is speaking to Jews. He's speaking to one who knows the covenantal language, who understands the covenantal boundaries, who know that the promise of God is found in covenant with him and that he has given a sign to help their faith. And yet they also know that that sign is not enough. It's why the prophets constantly declaim against those who are trusting merely in the flesh, merely in the formal, but that they must circumcise their hearts. But you see, here there is silence. And I think often we skip over this silence because we have a thought where we think, well, baptism is a spiritual reality, but circumcision is just a formal ritual. When the Bible speaks of circumcision the same way that it speaks of baptism, Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 10, he tells the Israelites to circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah pleads with the people of Israel in chapter 4 to circumcise their hearts, to come before the Lord. You see, circumcision was a physical sign of a spiritual reality that needed to be present. Not all those who were of Israel are Israel. And this is also true of baptism in the New Covenant. There is a spiritual reality that is pictured by the physical ritual or the sign. Paul shows us the transition of this in in Romans chapter 4, where he speaks of Abraham and of circumcision in verse 11. He says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still in uncircumcision. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. See, Paul here adds an element not just of a sign but of a seal. And by that I don't mean those Wonderful sea creatures that we see at SeaWorld doing the tricks. No, I mean the, same, the kind of seal that you would most often see on a diploma that you would hang on your wall. It is a stamp and approval. It is a visible, tangible sign that shows that there is a reality attached to it. It is not the education itself but it is a sign that you can look to that shows that the reality is there behind it. God puts seals upon our hearts, not just in baptism, not just in the sacraments, but even in His Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we read that He has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, He is described as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. You see, this sign and seal is a bolster to our faith. It is not a replacement for it. Paul here is making the implicit explicit. That there is a a spiritual aspect to the sign of the covenant. 
That is what he is describing here in Colossians. He says, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It was a work of the spirit that was inwardly of the heart. And you put off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so, you see, we are in covenant with God and we receive His sign and His seal and it is a spiritual reality that takes hold of our heart, that casts off sin and wickedness and it is all in the context of the work of Jesus Christ. So we must cast aside notions that the bare sign itself acts as some kind of mechanical lever changing things. But we must also understand that the sign has reality to it, that Jesus has chosen to give us this sign, to assist us in our faith and to help us to understand the spiritual reality that He has made in our lives. The old has vanished. The new has come. So no longer will there be any more circumcision because now there is greater clarity in baptism. So what then does that mean to us? I think it means three things as we see here in the text. First, that we are circumcised. Second, that we are buried. And third, that we are raised. First, let's notice the verbs that Paul uses. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised. Do you see that each of these is a past tense? He doesn't say you will be raised. He doesn't say that you might be circumcised or you are being circumcised. He doesn't say you will be buried. It is all a past tense. And you see here, Paul is confronting the false arguments in Colossae that also find their way in Houston and New York and Los Angeles and all throughout the world. A false argument that says that you must undertake other things in order to get close to God. That what Jesus has done is a good start. But if you really want to make it the rest of the way, you must do this yourself. In our day and age, there are churches and groups that will apply this very thing to baptism. The very thing that Paul preaches against in circumcision, they will say, well, if you haven't been baptized, you aren't saved. You must be baptized, and you must be baptized in our church with our formula. Otherwise, well, you've believed. That's a good start. But you've got to finish it off. You've got to make this second work. You've got to strip off the flesh and pay your penance. You must do a work in order to see God more clearly. And you see, Paul says, this is all false thinking. It is what Jesus has done. It is in the past, and we rely upon it. And you see, the reason why this is so important for us to think about, because if we are honest with ourselves, every believer struggles against the flesh. 
Don't we? We all do things that we wish we wouldn't. We all say things that we're sorry we did. We all struggle with sin that we seek to banish from our life. And you see, if someone comes alongside us with a seeking, with a seemingly magic formula to banish that from our lives, then we are desirous of it. And Paul says to you, there is no magic formula. There is no special work that you can do. It has already been done. Yes, you struggle against sin, but the victory has already been won by Jesus. You see, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. We tend to think that we are without hope and help. Or Satan will convince us of the opposite. Satan will take Romans 7.14 and reverse it and cause us to say, I am spiritual and the law is carnal and seek to put a distance between us and God's law to find meaning in ourselves and our own actions and our own spirituality. And we need to be very careful because it is what God has said and God has done that makes the difference. Paul says that we already possess the only purification and that Jesus Christ is the source. It is a circumcision made without hands in Christ. But we are also, Paul says, buried with him in baptism. Now, what does this mean? I think on one level we must completely shed our idea of American burial. Because you see, in Bible times, they did not dig a six-foot hole and put the body in it and cover it with dirt. That is, of course, our standard mode of burial, although even now it is becoming less and less standard as other forms such as cremation become more popular. Oftentimes, most Typically, the body was taken and put into a cave. That is, of course, what Abraham did with his family. And that is, of course, the tomb that our Lord Jesus Christ had. And a rock was rolled in front of the cave. So, we ought not to think about the, the burial and the baptism somehow to dealing with immersion. That somehow, if we are immersed under the water, that identifies us in being buried with Christ. You see, I think there's much more that's being said here. When we are buried with Christ, that tells us that the judgment that should have come upon us fell on Him. And it will not fall upon us. The judgment of God fell upon Jesus Christ and all who are in Him. And our old man has been sentenced to death and raised to new life. Because after all, what is death but the great separator, isn't it? It's one of the reasons that we fear death. We don't want to be separated from our loved ones. And of course, the ultimate death is to be separated from God. But now you see, Paul says, having been buried with Christ, nothing can separate us from God anymore. Our sin may remain, but there is no more separation from God. We are buried with Christ. And then finally, we are raised. 
We are raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Now notice that this is an action in the past, but it has a present experience. Paul doesn't speak here of a future resurrection. He says we are raised now. We are raised now in the sense that we have new life in the Spirit. He will talk about this in more detail in chapter 3 of Colossians. We are raised by this powerful working of God. You see, the Lord God is a worker of power and of might. But there is no greater or mightier work than the new birth. Translating His children from the dominion of death and sin to life, light, and His Son. There is no other work that compares to this. And you see, we are risen to new life, new life in Christ by faith, and we have fellowship with Him. This is what God has done by His power. And He reminds us of this by His covenant that He has taken us from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of His dear Son. And we are in covenant with Him, His Son and His Spirit, and each other. And the sign of the covenant is given to us that we might always remember what He has done. That we might look to the promise of what He is doing and the promise of what He will do in our families. Paul is describing here in our text not something brand new, but something in greater fullness Something in greater clarity. How God has described for us and given us a sign and a seal of His covenantal relationship with His people. That now is baptism. But it is not different in substance from circumcision. For what have we to hope for more than to be the children of Abraham? To have Him as our Father in the faith. To believe as He believed. To trust as He trusted. To walk as He walked. Abraham was the friend of God. Is that your hope and longing? To be God's friend by the work of another, by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To know this by faith and to experience it. Paul tells us that we can look to our baptism to help us in this, to see the promise of God and what the Lord has done for His people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You, Lord, that You have spoken by Your Apostle. You have spoken by Your servant. Our forerunner in the faith, Paul. Lord, we ask that you would remind us of our covenantal responsibilities before you. That we would seek after you, O Lord. That we would have our faith encouraged and established by your word and by the sign of your covenant. Remind us of this each day as we go from this place this week. That we would know that we carry the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ with us. This we ask 
in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. And now if you please stand for the Lord's blessing. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.